Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We're just interview big, big, bad, bustling Cal Newport. Now, uh, an author that we, we love his books. We started uh, with So Good They Can't Ignore You, his book Deep Work, and his new book Digital Minimalism. Mm, we like Cal so much, we did this at 3.30 in the morning. Yeah, it was a, it was a big, big you commitment. You fucked up the time zone a little bit, but that's all right. <laughs> Mate, I didn't realize that um, daylight savings was changing in both countries, so there was a bit of a... Bit of a mix up there, but uh, worth it, mate. Worth it for a bit of cal time. Well and truly worth it. So like we did in the episode, we took the journey going from So Good They Can't Ignore You into deep work, into his latest book, Digital Minimalism, about how uh, the whole digital world is really stuffing up your life and you need to take control back to, you know, just live a better life really for many reasons, including your career. Yeah, phenomenal episode, phenomenal interview with Cal. If you're uh, feeling the tug towards uh, being a little bit addicted to your phone and social media. Probably listen- everyone. Yeah, myself included. Definitely uh, listen with open ears to this one and uh, might uh, make a few changes. Slap you up, baby. <laughs> Can you start with telling us what are some of the dangers out there with following your passion? Well, I mean, this this became ubiquitous career advice starting in the late 90s going to the 2000s you can actually go and look it up that if you want to be happy just follow your passion like that's what we told people that's what i was told growing up that's what we still tell people today but if you go back and do some research on what does the literature tell us about workplace satisfaction or actually go out there and do some journalism so talk to people who are passionate about their work and say tell me your story you find out that the reality is often much more complicated, that probably nine times, let's say maybe nine out of 10 of the people I talked to who loved their work didn't know in advance what they wanted to do, for example. And so what happens when, if you just tell people, hey, just follow your passion? Well, you're actually giving them bad advice, right? You're, you're telling them that well, there should be something that you're wired to do and the key is matching that to your job. And if you do, you'll be happy. And if you don't, you don't. And if that's not really the reality for most people, then you're going to set them up on a path of sort of anxiety and chronic job hopping and, and worries like, well, maybe this is not my passion. What is my passion? And so I think that simple piece of advice has caused more complications in people's career satisfaction than almost anything that we've tried. It's, it's something that's actually making a lot of people less passionate or less likely to end up passionate about their work. And I, I think that you, uh, you say, you know, Steve Jobs, people love to quote Steve Jobs and uh, he talks, uh, you know, do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, follow your passion, you know, follow your dreams, all these things but uh you say when it's a bit more nuanced than that that probably steve jobs didn't necessarily uh practice what he was preaching there and it it's probably more looking back at his career that was something he pulled out and it's not even clear that he was really preaching that it's more how people interpreted his life right so he gave this sort of famous commencement address at stanford university where he talked about you know have really what he was talking about is having different interests you can sort of connect these dots and by doing so do interesting things but the headline from the stanford daily news the next week was or the next day actually was you know jobs tell students to follow your dreams but if you look back at jobs's life that's not at all what he did he stumbled into apple computer it didn't at all match his sort of pre-existing passion or drive to be an entrepreneur that wasn't really there he stumbled into it later in life he told his biographer walter isaacson quote, it's not all about you and your damn passion. <laughs> so he never really he never really subscribed to this idea that, hey, one day Steve Jobs woke up and said, I'm meant to be a world-changing technology entrepreneur and I'm going to go follow that. It was much more haphazard and serendipitous how he ended up changing the world as a technology entrepreneur. And that is more the rule than the exception. I mean, the path to interesting, passionate careers are haphazard, like Steve Jobs' path was haphazard, right? And so it's not about this idea that you're meant to do one thing. 
and it, and it, if you can match that pre-existing intrinsic trait to your work, you'll be happy. And if you don't, you won't. Reality is much more interesting and complicated in that sort of Disney fairy tale version mm. of the story. Yeah, and in the book you talk about how there's you got the passion hypothesis on one hand, and then you got the, the craftsman approach, which is all about acquiring career capital and with career capital you can actually use this as leverage to actually direct your career to the things that can make you more passionate or seeming passionate about what you actually do so can you tell us about how we might be able to gain some of this career capital um, and and what we should be trading it into in for to have a better career right well so that's that's the framework that i uncovered as a more consistent explanation for how people end up loving their work is that they get good at things first so as you get good at rare and valuable skills, you build up what I call career capital. And it's that leverage that gives you in the marketplace that usually allows people to begin shaping their working life in a direction that makes it a real source of passion. And so that's the craftsman mindset. Focus on becoming so good you can't be ignored. Lots of good things will follow in your career. If you instead focus instead on what's my passion, is this job matching my passion, you're much less likely to get there. So you're right. The key question then is how do I build career capital? You know, how do I become so good I can't be ignored? And it was actually, you know, this question uh, that led me in large part to the to the book that followed that deep work, which was all about the sort of underrated value of intense concentration. Because essentially, if you want to master hard things, there's no shortcut than actually just putting aside time and focusing really hard on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that, uh, you know, this the skill element that you're, you're it's all about developing those skills first and those rare and valuable skills because as you were sort of saying there's no like innate passion that we're all born with and we just need to go out there and find it and follow it and and uh you know if we don't find it our passion then we're doing something wrong i like this approach it seems like a much more i guess realistic way to be able to focus on something that you could do within your control in that you know building a rare and valuable skill and then later you can cash it in for some of those things that you say like creativity and, and impact and control. And then you're probably going to enjoy your job and your career more rather than just thinking, oh, is this serving me? Is this, is this match to my passion? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the, in the first few years, let's say after graduating university, uh, what you should be thinking about, for example, is where you want your job to be in five or 10 years. Because those first, let's say, five years is really much more like an apprenticeship stage. You know, what you're doing is trying to, as aggressively as possible, acquire and hone valuable skills in the marketplace, which you can then use as the foundation for building a really good life. Uh, the things that make a good job good are in demand, and they are themselves rare and valuable. So if you want them, you have to have something to offer in return, which is why to be 22 years old and asking, you know, do I love this job? is almost like a nonsensical question because by definition, you don't have nearly enough things to offer the marketplace yet to be able to demand and return the type of things to make people love their work. The right question for the 22-year-old should be, how is my apprenticeship going? What skills am I building? How fast am I building them? Could I be more effectively? Am I building the right skills? It should really be the sort of, I want to become a master at my craft. I'm trying to learn and build these skills as fast as possible so that I can get to a place where I could become, begin dictating terms for what my working life is like. That, I mean, that is probably nine times out of 10, the much more consistent mm. formula if you want to end up loving your work. Yeah, absolutely. And it really flies in the face of some of the other advice in other books that are out there around the world and other, you know, like gurus, so to speak. Is there any books out there or gurus that really 
get you worked up because it, 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 it's giving the most dangerous advice about what people should be doing with their career. Uh, and, and, and as you said, if you follow your passion, you can end up on jobs with zero career capital and no ability to actually have a, a, a really enjoyable career. Well, I mean, certainly back in that book, I took, I took issue in particular with what I call the courage culture, which is really widespread, or at least it was really widespread in, in career guru circles, where it was all about getting people fired up about this idea that the only thing holding you back is you're not courageous enough, right? Um, you just have to be brave enough to, to do your own thing, you know, quit your job, start the thing you always wanted to do. It's all just about, you know, courage. You're just not brave enough, right? And I, I've always had a real problem uh, with this message because often your reluctance to do the really cool thing is because there's a, a very logical part of your brain that recognizes you don't have any of the skills needed to, to stand out or distinguish yourself in this. Like just because you want to do X, Y, and Z doesn't mean that you have the skills to do it. Um, and you know, quite frankly, when, once you, once you actually do have the, the proper skills, it's often not as dramatic or courageous as a leap as these gurus would make it seem. You now say, I'm good at this. It's clear. I'm good at this. I'm turning away work for this. It seems almost obvious that I could start my own company or do X and Y. There's almost a sense of inevitability to it. And so I, I always dislike this sort of fetishizing of courage, um, where it makes it seem like there's just some flaw in your character that you ha- that's preventing you from having the life you love. And if you could just build this courage, then you would, you would be enjoying your working life. And I think that's so much less counterproductive than the process-oriented approach of let's inventory. I mean, it's not sexy, so let's be honest. <laughs> this, this isn't going to get people fired up at, in, in a big auditorium. Trust me. I've stood in front of 800 people before at one of these type of more wooly conferences and said, stop following your passion. Let's talk about building skills. And, you know, <laughs> it wasn't exactly a, standing, a spontaneous standing ovation. But, I mean, this is the reality. It's a lot less sexy. But the, the process-oriented approach of what skills do you have, what's your process for improving them, how did you choose them? Mm. You know, it's not that sexy, right? But this is the mindset, this sort of deliberate, like an athlete or a musician or a chess player, I'm just deliberately honing the right mm. skills day after day. In itself can be very fulfilling. Mastery is very fulfilling, but it really is how you get to that place where courage almost becomes a sort of orthogonal issue, right? It's not just you're not brave enough, fix that character flaw and you'll be okay. That's distracting people from the real question, which is you're not skilled enough. And let's get down into the reality of how to fix that. Yeah. Ashto over here, we, we, we both went to see Tony Robbins a couple of years ago and Ashto didn't have a job a week later. <laughs> I, feel like I, got, I got a good dose of courage, quit the job. <laughs> And then was unemployed yeah. for a little while. <laughs> you had to walk over hot coals, so I mean, yeah, exactly. Kind of a- <laughs> exactly, that was phenomenal. Um, so it's, it's somewhat um, ca- uh, not counterintuitive, but it's a advice, I guess, that flies in in the face of what we, as you know, we were both born in the '90s, so we were sort of brought up on the the passion idea. So focusing on skills is something a little bit different to what we'd uh, heard in the past. Another thing that I thought was different to what most people say is um, you said it turned down a promotion and that things like control uh, and autonomy are far more important than say a promotion or a pay rise right well just reflect right if you reflect on people who you've encountered let's say you've seen them interviewed or in documentaries or maybe you've met them in real life uh, whose professional life resonates with you just something about it makes your you know soul vibrate positively right in a lot of those cases, probably what it is that's actually catching your attention is they have a lot of autonomy. 
You know, it's like the blacksmith who's working out of his, you know, scenic barn near the Great Lakes as he sort of works on his whatever. The I talk, the organic farmer who's out there on his own land working on his fields or the software developer who works six months a year that takes the next six months off. Um, this was a, a huge part of the Tim Ferriss's lifestyle design philosophy and why why that resonated so much is because it was all about autonomy. He called it liberation, but same idea. Humans crave autonomy and it's incredibly valuable. And so it's it's one of the more valuable things you can cash in your career capital for once you have rare and valuable skills is more control over what you work, how you work on it, when you work on it. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and having that autonomy, I guess a, a good way of looking at also is the opposite of autonomy is being micromanaged by a boss. And the only reason you micromanage is probably because you haven't really acquired that career capital yet. Um and this, as you said earlier, this really links well into your next book and all your books really link beautifully and some incredible career advice. But in order to gain career capital, you need to have rare and valuable skills and the way to get rare and valuable skills is to be able to put in the high quality work, which is a awesome equation you got in that book. It says high quality work equals time spent times intensity of focus and this is where deep work can come in to really... Um, ramp up the intensity of focus part of that equation so i'd like to just uh for you to just talk about deep work and and the philosophy in general and how it can help people well so deep work is my term for the activity where you're focused without distraction on a cognitively demanding task right so it's when you're locked in you're really concentrating hard you're really thinking hard so maybe you're trying to produce something really hard, like a piece of writing, or you're trying to learn something really hard that requires intense, unbroken conversation. And my argument is that as our economy in general shifts worldwide, and especially in in sort of uh, Western countries towards knowledge work, the ability to do deep work is becoming more and more important. Just like if you lived back in ancient Sparta, your physical fitness would be really important, right? We'd say, yeah, it really matters. Like you really need to be in good shape because our whole culture is increasingly built around, you know, let's say uh, physical warfare. Well, well, right now our, our culture is increasingly built around doing cognitive work, you know, using your brain to create more value out of information. And deep work is the tier one activity if you want to be good at this. And so what's interesting, I mean, it, the idea came out of in part so good because people are saying, well, what should I do to, to get better at things? And basically the answer was get much more comfortable with concentrating because if you can concentrate intensely, you can pick up new skills really fast. But as I got more into the implications of that reality, you know, what I noticed is that, okay, not only is this becoming more valuable, not just for loving your career, but just in general for succeeding, we're getting worse at it. And this is because of whatever technical, unintentional technological consequences of things like email and Slack and social media and smartphones that, that we have a culture right now, a technological culture that uh, partially by design and partially accidentally is radically reducing our ability to concentrate, radically reducing our ability to do deep work. So now we have a classic sort of economic supply and demand type situation where this skill, the ability to concentrate is becoming more uh, in demand at the same time that its supply is going down. And Economics 101 then says, okay, then the price on this thing is going to be very high. And I think that's what's happening now, that if you're one of the few individuals or organizations who systematically cultivates and protects your ability to concentrate intensely, you get this disproportionate competitive advantage in the marketplace. Yeah, and that was uh, it was really uh, eye-opening and it became brutally aware to myself after reading 
deep work that it's very easy now not to get into deep work in that it's so easy to click off to somewhere else and check the next notification or uh, you know we've got so many different options available to us that as soon as we feel like we're slipping into deep work we can easily uh, get out of it and think now this is too hard I need something uh, quick and easy to to get my attention and time for a little while rather than really committing to that uh, intensity of focus and working really hard. Well, there's even a more insidious thing going on here, which is that uh, this drive to do these quick checks, right? Let me let me check my inbox. Let me check my phone. Let me check the web. A lot of us tell ourselves that we're single tasking and we are doing deep work because we don't literally have multiple windows open at the same time. But what modern psychology has taught us is that there's a cost to the context switch. And so if I just briefly look over at my inbox and then come back to the sort of hard, demanding cognitive task at hand, there's a residue left from that switch to my inbox. Psychologists call this attention residue. That's going to reduce my cognitive performance for a while. So even though I just looked at the inbox briefly, seeing those emails, knowing I can't answer them all now, you know, knowing I need to answer them later, now I have a non-trivial portion of my mind that's thinking about them still. Even though I've gone back to the main task, the main hard task, there's a non-trivial portion of my mind that's well, thinking through, well, what email am I going to send to my boss? And I do need to reply this. And your cognitive performance is degraded. You can't concentrate as well. You can't produce as high. And so what we're doing as a work culture is by doing these frequent quick checks, it's like every 10 or 15 minutes, inbox, phone, browser tabs, we're keeping ourselves in a self-imposed state of reduced cognitive performance without even realizing it. It's like we're all taking reverse neurotropic drugs that make us dumber. Uh, but don't, don't realize that's what we were taking. Right. I mean, if, if I came up and said, guys, I have to admit something, I've been putting stuff in the coffee, right? <laughs> I've been putting whiskey in the coffee and we've all been working drunk for the, for the last, you know, whatever <laughs> you'd be like, uh, that's fun, but okay, we must be producing way worse. You'd be mad, right? Like our company, I mean, you might be happy, but depends on what you think about the job, but <laughs> probably the CEO would say like, I'm not happy about the fact that you've been putting whiskey in your coffee because everyone's been mildly buzzed. And so they're like producing much worse work, but we're doing that, but with distractions, except for we don't even really realize it. So we're making ourselves much worse at cognitive work and we don't even realize it. Uh, so deep work is key, but you're, you're, you're very, it's very good that you're pointing out how easy it is to sort of uh, reduce your ability to do so. And those quick checks and the residue they, they, they leave behind is one of the biggest culprits to, to diminish our diminished ability to concentrate. Yeah, sick. Um, just to tie the other two books up before we get into your, your latest book. So it seems like the, the advice we've got is to go out and acquire career capital. And with career capital, you get leverage to choose things like passion or, or autonomy and um, go toward mastery. And the way to acquire career capital is to do deep work and to get those rare and valuable skills we can use. And then the biggest risk we have with deep work is actually having this constant attention residue of swapping between tasks and not being able to go deep in anything. And I think this is where digital minimalism comes in. So can you tell us a little bit of how digital minimalism connects with your other two books and how it can actually help us have a increase our overall quality of life as well. So here's how it came about. You know, I, I put out Deep Work in 2016, and I'm on the road talking about it, and I keep getting the same reaction from readers, which is they'll say, you know, maybe I buy this premise you have about these unintentional consequences of technology in our work life, you know, their impact on our ability to do things like Deep Work. 
But what about the unintentional consequences of new technologies on our life outside of work, on sort of our ability to sort of flourish and be healthy and really enjoy life? Because they kept reporting that the things that are on their phone seem to be increasingly reducing their quality of their life outside of work. And so I started to look into this question and realized that, okay, not only are they absolutely right, but the forces at play in some sense are, are actually quite distinct. Whereas in the workplace, uh, we had technologies like email and instant message come in that had only good intentions and but unintentionally uh, reduced our ability to actually do our job well. And so if you talk to people uh, in the workplace market, they sort of recognize this and they're trying to think, okay, so what do we do about this? Because everyone agrees. We, we want workers to feel less burnout. We want them to produce better things with their brain. What was happening in the personal space was more insidious. So like what was happening in people's personal lives is that they had sort of haphazardly downloaded these apps and signed up for these services for innocent reasons. And over time, the companies behind these things had re-engineered them to make them more addictive and more compulsive, to extract more eyeball minutes from their users. And now as a culture, we're looking up five or six years later and realizing that we're looking at our phone 150 times a day and that we're looking at it way more than is useful, way more than is healthy to the exclusions of things that we know are more important to us. And because of that, really feel like the quality of our life outside of work is being diminished by these same technologies that we signed up to make our life better. And so digital minimalism came out of this realization that more and more people have started to have over the past couple of years, that there's something uneasy going on in terms of their relationship with technology in their personal lives. It is so crazy to think how much we use our phones. I know that me personally, because we're reading so much, I'm reading on the train and I, I look around on the train and everyone's uh, just fully captivated with whatever's going on in their phone. And I, I probably get the feeling that it's probably not too much that's too exciting going on in there. But even uh, for myself as well, we, we read a book uh, called uh, Alan Carr, The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. And it was a real eye-opener that uh, it was almost like this behavioral addiction, this alcohol, and using alcohol to fill in uh, in different social situations. And it opened my eyes to think as well how often I'm using my, my phone as a crutch. So whether it's you know waiting in the, the lift, just that 20 seconds in the lift, the phone comes out, not for anything in particular, um, just I don't even know what I'm doing. Same as, you know, waiting in line for a coffee. You don't just stand there and wait. It's just straight to the phone, head down, looking at whatever's going on in there, which is almost uh, nothing important, that's for sure. It's like this this uh, ongoing addiction that we, we can't seem to stop and everyone, we probably don't even realize, but at every moment, we're just filling any empty space with looking at our screen. And the, the key thing to know about that is that that behavior is recent and engineered. And so... Just one of the big findings, I think, when I was doing research for digital minimalism is that this constant companion model we have of our phone, where it's something we look at all the time, right? At any down moment on the train, waiting in line, we look at the phone in social situations. At any moment of awkwardness, we look at the phone. We incorrectly think that that's just fundamental to the technology, that once we had internet-connected smartphones, of course, that's what you would use them for. But it, that's actually a behavior that's much more contrived than people realize. When the first consumer-facing smartphones like the iPhone was released, that's not how people use them. What actually changed us towards that behavior, it was the major social media companies led by Facebook. Around the time that uh, Facebook in particular was starting to think about their IPO, they realized they had to get their revenue up significantly to get the type of return that their early stage investors demanded, which were some pretty powerful VCs. To get that revenue up significantly, they had to get people to look at their phones significantly more. And so they re-engineered the entire Facebook experience in two ways. One, they made it mobile. 
they really started to emphasize mobile around this point because people had their phones with them all the time. And so this increased the opportunity for people to look at it. And then two, they changed the experience of Facebook from this more static thing where you post things about your life. Your friends post things about their lives. You occasionally check what's going on. They changed it away from that into, no, no, there's an incoming stream of social approval indicators about you at all times. Likes, which were not in the original Facebook. Photo tags, which they spent millions to innovate, was not in the original Facebook. Comments, retweets, hearts, favorites, all of these type of single bit uh, or low bit approval indicators that, that show, hey, here's a sign that someone was thinking about you. That became the focus of the platform. And so now you put those two things together and what you have is in your pocket, you have this uh, icon that you can tap. And every time you tap, like pulling a slot machine handle, you can see how many people were thinking about me in the last couple of minutes. Did anyone say something about me? Did someone post a picture of me that other people could look at? That was 100% contrived. None of that was in the original social media experience. None of that was clamored for by users. But what they got by re-engineering social media to be this sort of mobile social approval indicator slot machine is that people began to check their phones drastically more often. And it did raise their revenue numbers, and it did make them a lot of money. But this whole behavior, we, and everyone followed suit after Facebook innovated this. They, they made everything became about social approval indicators and, and some other tactics too, like uh, algorithmically optimized engagement. So like picking the right articles to show you to get some sort of emotional reaction and so on. They really got really good at this attention engineering. But basically about five or six years ago, they created from whole cloth this idea that you should be checking your phone all the time. It was engineered by the attention economy companies to increase their revenues. So this thing we all do now as a crutch is not fundamental to the technology. It was invented by a small number of engineers who are figuring out how do we get Kleiner Perkins the 100x return that they want on their early stage investment. Mm. Just to um, just to visualize the the war on our attention, what's what's going on? What kind of teams of the Facebook developers and so forth, what kind of people have they got in their team, behavioral experts that we're up against when we're trying to, you know, reclaim our attention back? Well, they colloquially, they call them attention engineers. And it's people that, I mean, the way they talk about it formally is that there's these metrics like user engagement minutes that they want to uh, maximize or average average connections, you know, how long you stay on the service or how many times you check into the average day. They have these metrics they're trying to optimize. And they come at it from two ways. So the one direction is actually having engineers who, who think about the human experience and try the human brain and try to change the way the app functions in such a way to make it more engaging. And so, you know, some of these engineers, for example, come out of BJ Fogg's Persuasive Technology Lab at Stanford, where they specialize on how to use technology to actually change people's behaviors. Uh, then on the other side, they have the sort of machine learning AI people working on this. And so the machine learning AI approach says, let's just... Uh, let's build machine learning models that will try to learn, you know, how do we get people to look at the the app longer, right? And so this is sort of more of a, a, a blind approach to it. They build these smart AI models that just study users. If I show this, are they more likely to keep looking? If I show this, are they more likely to keep looking? And these models over time build their own sort of artificial intelligence, about how to keep people on the apps longer. And so we see this a lot in sort of the, the types of things that are recommended in news feeds or on YouTube, like what you should watch next. There's a reason why that's so compelling. It's because there's AI models. They're looking at millions of users' reactions to figure out what works. And so we have these two forces. We have attention engineers or who are sitting there and making decisions, like the, the engineer that decided they had to change the color of the Facebook notification alert 
out of the Facebook palette into Alarm Red because they knew from biology textbooks that it's harder to ignore Alarm Red. And then you have the AI models that are just uh, letting loose on millions of users to try to figure out how do we keep users engaged more. And I got to tell you what's scary about the AI models is that because these are sort of unsupervised, right? This is not people making decisions. It's just a model and that's all it's trying to do is relentlessly get user engagement up, up, and up is that these models can push people into really weird places. And so like one of the consequences of just releasing AI models and trying to capture our attention is that it took something like Twitter and has helped push Twitter more towards like an outrage generation machine. You know, no one sat down and said outrage is good because people engage more when they're outraged by something. The AI model figured that out. And you look up three years later and suddenly, you know, it, social media can become a radicalizing force. So you have these two things going on, all of which are aimed at the simple goal more minutes of your attention looking at the phone. And when you have that much technology and that much money on the line focusing on that goal, you're up against this massive machinery. And so this idea that just like we, we're lazy or we have bad willpower, we should look at our phones less, is incredibly naive. It's an incredibly lopsided arms race that we're fighting in right now. It's just most people don't even realize it. It's pretty It's pretty wild, and we sort of love this sort of uh, borderline um – not conspiracy theory, but more towards that sort of what's really going on in the world. So we, we love hearing about that. And after I read uh, Deep Work probably six or eight months ago, I, I you know, became violently aware of how much I was checking my phone. So I deleted Facebook and Instagram off the phone, which was a, a good first step. And, and then I realized that if I was, I was checking Facebook probably you know twice a week and have 84 notifications and there was a lot of crap in those notifications. There's probably only really three or four things that were actually uh, legit things where someone had was trying to contact me in some way. The rest was, you know, someone added a photo, you know, this page added a new video, uh, somebody posted in this group. There was a lot of there was a lot of crap in the notifications, and I I feel like I'm just starting to win the war now because every time I got a you know this page shared a new photo, I'd go to that page and then unsubscribe from the notifications, and I'm. I think Facebook's getting desperate now because they're sending me a lot of crappy, crappy notifications yeah. just to to keep me in the a, a, a little bit of uh, you know a little bit of a reward for the for checking in on Facebook. Yeah, well, they're they're that that's about their quarterly numbers. Just that they've been having this exodus of users, and they're trying to push back on that, but they're they're trying to prop things up so that the next quarterly numbers aren't so bad. So Facebook, I mean, the, Facebook, the, its core product of the Facebook network, at least in, in in a lot of countries, not the emerging countries where it's new, but in a lot of countries is shedding users left and right because it's really kind of an emperor has no, clo- new, no clothes type moment, right? You you step back a little bit and just look objectively at like, what am I doing on this screen? Like, what is this like really weird arbitrary interface for like tapping on these little pictures and putting these emojis? And it's like, this is, you know, come on, (laughs) this this can't possibly, it can't possibly be at the core of like being really successful or being happy or like living a good life or building things that are meaningful. Like, is it possible that all of our culture shifted in the last seven years? So that's now at the core of it. And for a lot of people who step away from something like Facebook, it really can be this sort of scales falling off their eyes moment where they look back and are thinking, 
what was I doing with all that time? Like, how did we ever feel that it was so normal to, 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 to be here hunched over, our face illuminated by this little screen as we sort of frantically swipe and tap and, and kind of tell ourselves we're crushing it. <laughs> Meanwhile, like while you're doing that, you know, in the, the, the house down the street is like the, the digital minimalist deep workers who, who aren't doing any of that. And what they're doing is they're sitting there with a textbook and learning something hard and they're laughing to themselves because they know that they're just going to dominate. Uh, they're just going to, they're going to learn how to do something that's incredibly valuable and they're going to ask for a high price for it and they're going to dominate. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, there's a small number to bring all these things together, all three books together. There's a small number of sort of deep individuals. They're like, I know what I'm about. I'm trying to, I'm mastering hard things like an apprentice. I'm taking full advantage of those skills when I have it. You can have your Instagram, Facebook, whatever, whatever, building your persona, following brand or whatever. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to produce something that only five other people in the world can and ask for a lot of money for it and write my own terms. You know, like they're the people who are making out in this current economy, not the people who are there on the train looking at their phone, telling themselves some story about how all this tapping is going to build some sort of social media brand that's going to be the foundation of some ambiguous rise to the fame. Not that I'm ranting. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a I've got a good quote here for you for the um it's kind of like the crushing it hypothesis. So I've I've pulled this quote from the the man Gary Vaynerchuk who who wrote down this hypothesis, and I think it's probably good to mention because if there's any devil's advocate that goes against what digital minimalism is, it's what Gary Vaynerchuk's <laughs> crushing it kind of idea is. And he says. Technology doesn't care about your feelings. If you don't adjust to the reality of the situation, you'll be left behind. Too many people are living in a world that it used to be. So if you were speaking to Gary and he he told you that, what would you reply that, you know, that you're just being left behind, the people out there who are, you know, claiming their attention back rather than um, hustling and, and crushing it all day, every day and filling every single second of their lives doing, you know, tweeting when they're doing a shit or something like that. Right. Well, I mean, I, what I think Gary gets right, you know, the, the thing I admire about Gary is that uh, he does point out that it's hard. Like you want to do something, it's hard. So if, so he's like, if you're trying to do something hard, like don't complain if you're not working hard. And and I, I get that. Where I think his message often gets corrupted, and I don't know to what degree this is him or what degree it's his follower, but where, where I think his message gets corrupted is, well, what is the actual nature of the hard work that moves the needle? And I think a lot of his a lot of his followers are are too quick to think that it's just a sort of like ambiguous, constant engagement with technology will somehow alchemize into value. Where I'm much more of a market fundamentalist, right? I mean, the market is the market is brutal. It, if it, it wants things that are rare and valuable, it'll reward things that are rare and valuable. It won't reward things that aren't rare and valuable. If if someone's thinking, yeah, I really need to reassess how I'm approaching technology, what are some of the practices people can do to start to claim back their attention? So at at the core of digital minimalism, my my most recent book, I do give a process. And it's something I pretty heavily tested. I ran over 1600 people through it last year. And so I know a lot about it. I have a lot of evidence that it works well. And I call it the digital declutter, but it essentially says take 30 days and step away from any of these technologies that you can reasonably step away from for 60 days. And for those that you can't completely step away, put some real fences around how you use it. So not on your phone, just at certain times, you know, cut back your use to just the bare minimum to, to not cause problems. 
And then what do you do during these 30 days? Well, at first, you're just getting a bit of a detox type result, which is, you know, for the first week or two, you're just losing this sort of compulsive need to always be checking things. But more importantly, it's enough time, 30 days is enough time to actually do the self-reflection required to figure out what do you actually care about? Like, what do you want to spend your time doing? What gives you the biggest rewards? What's important to you? And then when those 30 days are over, you can rebuild your digital life from scratch, except for this time, work backwards from those values. You, for each of them, say, okay, is there some selective way I can I can use some technology that's going to really help this particular value or really help me express this particular value? And you, you then you'll bring that technology back into your life, but maybe put some rules about how and when you use it to make sure that you're getting as much benefit as possible and avoiding as much cost as possible. And so you eventually you you essentially rebuild your digital life from something haphazard into something that's really focused and intentional, where tools are helping you do specific things that you really care about. That lifestyle you end up with on the other side of this transformation is what I call digital minimalism. And I've watched a lot of people go through this transition where they, they're being used by their tools and being held back by their tools into being someone who's getting after things they care about and are deploying tools very strategically to get what they're looking for. And so that's what I really recommend for people. It sounds sick. I think we're, we're both going to do it. We'll let you know how it goes. What are, what are some other practices that people can follow if they're not going to do the full 30-day detox that they can you know, just take away one, one or two takeaways or different kind of actions from listening to this interview that you might be able to recommend for people? Well, to, to try to span a couple books here, I'll, I'll give you two, sort of one, one associated with your work day and deep work and another associated with sort of preparing to do something like the digital declutter. Um, so from, from the deep work perspective, I would say start scheduling on your calendar time to do un, uninterrupted technology. So actually put it on your calendar and protect it like you would any other meeting or appointment, right? That's time that's booked. You don't book anything else there. And when you get to those times, maybe develop some sort of ritual you do, where you go, the coffee you brew, whatever it is, some ritual, a walk you do right before you start working, but some sort of ritual to tell your mind we're about to do concentration. And then on the the digital minimalism side, if you're sort of preparing to do your 30-day declutter, but you're not quite there, one way to get in shape for that is just to take off your phone, any application in which someone makes money from your attention every time you tap on it. You don't have to quit yet. But just put it on your desktop where there's a little bit of friction involved and it can't be a crutch. It's something that you can, if you need it for something, you can log on your computer at home and you can get the value you need out of it. But you can't use it as a crutch. Just doing that alone is going to get you in much better shape when the time comes to do a more radical transformation. Yeah, I like it. There are a few good, um, a few good easy ones to do. And, you know, with the, you know, Apple recently put the screen time um, function on their, their phone. Some people, if they haven't checked it yet, might be uh, completely uh, shocked to see that they're spending three or four hours a day on the screen. If they were able to inject some of these digital minimalism ideas and maybe cut that down to you know one, one and a half hours, that's a fair bit of time left in the day. Uh, how can we start to fill those back up with more positive things? Well, this is the hard part. And I was surprised to discover in my research how hard this is, is that a lot of people they have been using sort of these lightweight technological distractions as such a crutch to escape their own thoughts, to escape their own life, that when you take it away, it can be almost terrifying. What am I supposed to do now? And it, it seems like an obvious question until you realize that it's been years since you've actually really faced it and that it can be really distressing. And so this is something that I recommend people take seriously. Like, what do you actually want to do, for example, with your leisure time? And I, I have some suggestions. I mean, high-quality analog leisure turns out to be really important. And so 
picking up skills, getting better at things, joining organizations, doing things with other people. These are more important than we think. And you have to be prepared that as soon as you start pairing back to lightweight distractions, you have to be ready to aggressively fill them with sort of high barrier to entry, high quality analog leisure alternatives. It's doing both of those things that makes this sustainable. Because if you just cut back on the tech and just try to white knuckle it, life can be really sort of boring and distressing and anxiety producing. So you got to do both. Cut back on the low quality and aggressively backfill in those spaces with the high quality. Awesome. And uh, where, where do you see all this going in the future, Cal? Like, obviously, 10 years ago, a lot of this was just starting off. And then I don't know how the hell it happens, but it's just really <laughs> just taken over a lot of people's lives. Do you think the trend's going to continue in that direction? Or do you think the attention resistance is going to grow and claim their, their free time and boredom back? I think there's a big pushback emerging. I, I think in particular, the idea that there's these small number of really large attention economy conglomerates like the social media companies that have basically invented their own private versions of the internet within their own walled gardens and just have this expectation that billions of people are going to like workers in a virtual factory, just sit there, you know, giving their data over so that they can be monetized. I think that is sort of a, a fragile contrivance. And so I think the internet is a miraculous innovation. I think it will continue to be a miraculous innovation, but I think this current 10 year moment of let's build these massive walled garden networks and try to convince everyone that they need to exist just in these walled garden networks. And we'll try to exploit them their attention as much as possible. I think that's going to go away because we don't need it. We have the internet and the open protocols of the internet that, that give you everything you need to sort of express yourself, find interesting people, connect, find interesting information. It's all out there and doesn't require us to be a gadget in, say, the, the Facebook or Twitter machine. And so my optimistic prediction is that this era of having a small number of massive attention conglomerates is going to pass. Those are going to fragment into many more smaller communities and niche services that deliver the same type of benefits of connection and discovery and expression, but do so in a way that's a lot more human and a lot less exploitative. Um, of course, the negative idea of thinking about this is, no, it's you know basically the, the companies that own the phone companies that own the pipes are going to buy the information companies like the social media companies that essentially just monopolize the entire internet. And and that's sort of like the Tim Wu version of the world. And that's possible as well. But I'm holding out on optimism for now. Or uh, <laughs> Her. That, that, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Her, but that comes to mind where, you know, people spend 24-7 on their phone and they just fall in love with an AI or something. And then, <laughs> then it all, it's the end of the world, basically. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Yeah, but they're not. The problem is, is like the Silicon Valley guys aren't. They're not good enough at it. Like they, they didn't balance things well enough. They got too good at exploiting our attention, but they're not delivering things nearly as compelling as Scarlett Johansson, you know, talking to our phone. And that's what's happening. So people are saying, wait a second, they got the balance wrong. And that's why people are waking up and saying, I'm spending three hours a day on my phone to do what? To yell angry tweets at celebrities and look at, you know, my uncle sending articles, right? They, they, they didn't, get, as you make it more addictive, you got to balance up what it is, that the benefits you're giving in, in exchange. And so, yeah, fortunately, they're not as good as they think they are yet. So <laughs> we still have a chance. Let's hope they never get that good or we're all cooked, I reckon. Um, as, yeah. we sort of move, as we sort of shift to just out more, uh, the questions we ask uh, all the authors we speak to, what are some of the the your, your favorite books or books that you would most recommend somebody read? Uh, well, so in this like techno-criticism space, one of the sort of recent entries of the last 10 years that I think really shook things up was 
Jaron Lanier is you are not a gadget. Uh, it's it's really sort of radical philosophy. So you don't really want to come at that book from the perspective of this is going to give you a sort of practical roadmap for what technology should do. But it's also uh, sort of a brilliant treatise on what's dehumanizing about the way we're, we're running the consumer internet and, and, and what it could be instead. It's like having a sort of exuberant conversation with the smartest slash craziest friend, you know? And so for anyone who's looking to just completely change, you know, the way they think about the internet and consumer technologies read, you are not a gadget. I think it's, it's sort of a, a epochal book of this current age. Yeah. Sick. Uh, we'll recommend that for the listeners. And um, if people want to find out more about your book and and all the awesome projects you're up to and your other books, where where do you think they should go? Well, I've never had a social media account, so you're you're not going to find me there. But uh, I am big internet blog nerd. So if you go to calnewport.com, you'll see I've been blogging there about these ideas and many others for over a decade. Uh, you can also learn more about me in the books there as well. Fantastic. And I, I know you've only just had a, the brand new books just come out. Um, so all the best with that. But uh, what's sort of on the horizon for Cal Newport? What's the next project? Well, the, the book I'm writing now is tentatively titled A World Without Email. And um, I'm going back to the world of business and trying to sort of tackle this unfortunate state of affairs we're in today where more and more knowledge work means just sitting there at sort of communication terminals, like inboxes and Slack channels and just sending messages back and forth all day. That's not sustainable. So I'm trying to make the argument, how do we get there and how do we get out of it? 